0: The state of Australia's environment is poor and deteriorating due to a mixture of pressures including climate change, invasive species, habitat loss, pollution and resource extraction. That's the findings from the State of the Environment 2021 report. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Think Sustainability. I'm your host, Marlene Even. In a moment's time, we'll be joined by a guest panel to discuss what the State of the Environment report says about Australia's threatened species and whether law reform could save them. Every five years, a comprehensive, independent and evidence-based review is released on the state of the Australian environment with the aim to guide policy and action. Now, there is some grim findings about Australia's biodiversity. That Australia now has more foreign plants than native species, 19 ecosystems are showing signs of collapse or near collapse, and that we are expecting more extinctions in the future. To discuss the State of the Environment Report and law reform, I am joined by a panel of esteemed guests. Firstly, I would like to introduce you to environmental scientist Dr. Ian Creswell, co chair of the 2021 State of the Environment Report adjunct professor at the University of New South Wales and a former research director at the CSIRO. Ian, welcome to Think Sustainability.
1: Good morning, Marlene. Thank you for having me on the program.
0: Our next guest is Rachel Wormsley, head of law reform and policy at the Environmental Defender's Office, EDO, which is a not-for-profit environmental legal centre in the Australia Pacific. Rachel is also a member of International Union for Conservation of Nature's World Commission on Environmental Law. Welcome, Rachel.
2: Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: And our third guest is Dr. Lee Martin, ecologist and director of the Environmental Sciences Program at the University of Technology, Sydney. He previously worked as a research officer and policy advisor for government ministers and for the Total Environment Centre. Lee, a warm welcome to the Think Sustainability podcast.
3: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Marlene.
0: Let me start off by asking you Ian, what are the main takeaways for the State of the Environment report about threatened species? Are we seeing an increase?
1: So, yes, well, unfortunately, we have seen more species listed over the last five years. Um, uh, nearly 200 new species were listed nationally. And that brings us up to over uh, uh, 1,300 plant species and over 500 animal species. And worryingly, of those animal species, that's uh, 21% of all Australian mammals are actually now listed in some form of threatened category at the national level.
0: And Lee, the report states that Australia has one of the highest rates of species decline amongst developed countries. Why is Australia losing species at such a high rate compared to other countries?
3: Well, there are a great many influences, but the three largest contributors to biodiversity decline are uh, loss of habitat, climate change and the impact of invasive species, both invasive plants and animals. And those three factors are acting in consequence to give us a threatened species crisis.
0: So, Rachel, when you heard the findings of this state of the environment report, did it surprise you at all?
2: Sadly, the findings weren't surprising, but at the same time, they were very shocking in terms of the scope of the problem we now have. As Lee said, we are in a biodiversity crisis. And for a number of our iconic species and the the wildlife and native animals and plants that Australians love, so many of them are actually now in peril.
1: Marlene, if I could add to that, um, perhaps one of the things that most listeners might not understand is that that's only listed species of known species that we've actually discovered and documented. So more than 70% of Australia's biodiversity actually isn't even uh, discovered and documented properly yet. So while we talk about the number of listed species going up, that actually depends as uh, as well as on which ministers list and some of them list more, some of them miss less. Rachel will be able to tell us all about that. Uh, but it also depends on actually knowing what's where and, and, measuring it. And unfortunately, uh, if we were to look more, uh, in more detail, we'd find that many, many more species are actually um, in danger and becoming uh, uh, more endangered. What we're
3: seeing in this state of the environment report, as shocking as it may be, comes as no surprise. It is really a continuation of things that we've seen reported in the previous state of environment reports. So it's an ongoing long-term trend of biodiversity decline.
0: And is this reversible with the threatened species that have been listed? Or is it inevitable to see some of these species become extinct? Uh, Ian, I'll go to you first.
1: So there's a, there's some good news uh, where the government put in place a threatened species strategy in 2015, and uh, and also invested funds in trying to manage those species. We saw 24 of those species partially improve on their trajectory. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they uh, that they all uh, were recovered. But it does mean that we slowed down the rate of, of loss, uh, and we're able to improve the trajectory. So if it's going down, it wasn't going down quite as badly. Uh, so that's fantastic. We we do know that, and this happens both at the national level and at the state and territory level. Uh, but unfortunately, the the number that we improve is far far less than the number the, the number keeps growing of the one of listing of, of threatened species. So, yes, we can do it. It's about how we invest um, and the size of our investment, which is actually not up to the task.
3: I think that's a very important point. The the trend is reversible, but not if we carry on with business as usual. Uh, Business as usual has got us to the point we're at today and, and we need to have a serious revision of the way we address biodiversity and threatened species.
0: Now, I want to go back to basics and ask the, this question to you, Rachel. If a species is listed as threatened or endangered, so, for example, the koala, what does that actually mean legally? Does the Australian government have to protect an endangered species' habitat? And
2: what happens when a species is actually listed is that there's a process under under the law that a species gets nominated, it gets assessed, and it may actually get listed in in five different categories. So there's extinct, extinct in the wild, critically endangered, endangered, vulnerable or conservation dependent. Once it gets listed, then it's not actually automatically protected under law. What happens is it becomes what's known as a matter of national environmental significance. So if there's a new project or a development proposed and that listed species uh, is likely to be impacted, uh, then that project needs to be referred under national laws for assessment. Uh, one other thing that might happen on listing is that the species will get a conservation advice written for it. So that's a relatively short document that uh, identifies actions needed for recovery, and that document guides decision-makers when a, a, a project is proposed, and it also can guide investment Another step is that a listed species may actually get a recovery plan written and have a recovery team. So if we're talking about actual recovery of species, the gold standard is to have a proper, thorough, detailed recovery plan written uh, that actually sets out research requirements, management actions and a long-term plan for a species. Unfortunately, in Australia, that's no longer mandatory for a listed species so, for example, the former um, Minister for the Environment just before our recent election uh, reviewed 185 listed species and decided that 176 of them no longer need a recovery plan and they can just have the shorter advice. So there's the problem is recovery plans take time and they take money. So for the purpose of efficiency, it's much cheaper just to do these advices but that doesn't actually result in protection. We have other tools in the act, like a critical habitat register, where our critical habitat can be registered, but that is totally underused. We have five habitats listed there. We have key threatening processes. Again, there's processes under the law where these things can be listed. But as noted in the recent review of our national environmental law, we have these processes, Once things are listed, not enough actually happens after that. There's not the investment. It doesn't trigger actual protection. So you can have a species that is listed as endangered, but an individual project that is going to impact that species can still be validly approved under law because it's decided on a project-by-project basis.
0: And we'll be talking about that in a moment. But just quickly, how does that then compare to like the, uh, the United States legislation, in terms of mandating habitat protection?
2: Well, one of the real strengths of the United States Endangered Species Act is that not only does it list species in peril, but it actually requires our identification of critical habitat and for that crit- critical habitat to be identified and protected and It also funds recovery planning and has a long-term strategy, but that critical link between not just listing a species on a piece of paper under Act, but actually identifying the habitat and then making really clear laws that federal agencies cannot actually make decisions or do funding or authorise actions that are going to jeopardise that species or modify or damage that critical habitat. That's been a really, really powerful thing in the United States. There have been some efforts to water down those protections and bring in economic considerations, but it is actually really heartening if you look at some of the data in the States that species have actually been able to recover under that act. We've seen wolves recover, cranes, bald eagles. We have actually seen species recover and trajectories go upwards, and that's what we'd like to see in Australia, but that would require significant law
0: reform. Now, as we talk about habitat protection, it seems a good segue to talk about land clearing. Now, the State of the Environment report found that a large amount of land um, was cleared. Was it actually not referred to the Australian government for assessment? Ian, can you explain why that, why that is, or why that was?
1: So there's several different uh, factors that play here. Uh, one, one is that, uh, that clearing is mostly a, a state and territory issue, so our states and territories underneath our national uh, our, our national government. And in the last five years, or uh, all, all, all the time actually, the last 20 years, the state and territory legislation governing clearing uh, tightens up and then gets relaxed. And what we saw in um, in the last five years was New South Wales changed its laws, and that allowed um, for some different sorts of clearing. Uh, and in fact, we saw in New South Wales, something like 71% of the clearing was, uh, was unauthorised. Now, that doesn't mean to say it's necessarily illegal. It just means that it's either doesn't require a permit or hadn't been referred for a permit. Um, but it's still a very large number of, of the amount of clearing that, that basically had no uh, eyes or ears on it. Um, and, uh, and then if you then elevate that up to the national level, you find that uh, it's up to a proponent to decide whether or not anything that they do is going to uh, impact on the national legislation. What Rachel talked about, these matters of national environmental significance. Uh, and so generally, as in as stated some over 90 percent of people didn't refer it for le- under the national environmental legislation so that's why you get this huge amount 7.1 million hectares of 7.7 million unreferred um now that doesn't necessarily mean it was illegal but it does mean that no one's watching uh, and the fact the states themselves uh, compile significant inventories of their own clearing and um, and it's fair to say that in, in New South Wales and Queensland, uh, they're, they're just not keeping up with the amount of clearing and the state legislation to manage it.
3: Look, there's no doubt that clearing is a major contributor to biodiversity decline. New South Wales and Queensland previously had quite strong laws on protection of native vegetation. They've been very much watered down over the last 10 years or so. And there are a lot of loopholes in the current legislation to facilitate clearing.
0: Let's talk about the Australia's national environment legislation. It's called the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, the EPBC Act. Now, since its inception, there have been multiple reports, reviews and parliamentary inquiries recommending that the legislation be amended. Now, the newly elected Labor government has pledged to either amend the EPBC Act or create new law to replace it next year. I'm announcing that by the end of the year, the Australian government will formally respond to the Samuel review. We'll then develop new environmental legislation for 2023. This is Tanya Plibersek, Australia's Minister for the Environment and Water. She's addressing the National Press Club of Australia at the release of the State of the Environment report. We'll consult thoroughly on environmental standards. But in the meantime, I want to see an immediate start on improving our environmental data and regional planning, establishing a shared view around what needs to be protected and restored, the areas where development can occur with minimal consequences. So... What do we need to see in this reform of environmental legislation to conserve our threatened species? What's what's on the wish list? Rachel, I'll go to you first.
2: Thank you. There's so many things that I'd love to see reformed in our national laws, because it's 20 years old, the Act, the EPBC Act. It's 20 years old it's out of date it's not even fit for purpose we have a thousand pages of law that barely mentions climate change for example so i think my top five things that are on my wish list would be first of all to just improve the scope of the act so that it does address climate change to make sure any projects or any impacts considered under the act actually address climate change and consider climate impacts on our species And so I'd have a climate change trigger in there. I would also have a land clearing trigger in there to make sure that all this habitat clearing, this death by a 1,000 cuts is actually actually considered. I would, um, on the death by a 1,000 cuts, I would consider the cumulative impacts of all these things happening across Australia through using tools like proper bioregional planning and strategic planning to make sure we we identify um, the critical areas of biodiversity importance. My third thing, I would invest resources in mandatory recovery planning and restoration. I think the Act doesn't really galvanise the restoration at the moment. Um, My fourth thing is strong national environmental standards. So in Australia, we have states and territories. As Lee and Ian have been saying, we have different native vegetation clearing laws and exemptions in states and territories. What we need is national standards to set some minimums, set some protected areas, and particularly for things like biodiversity offsetting. So that's where there's a trade-off, where you have, you get to clear some habitat in one area on the condition that you preserve habitat elsewhere. That's a very controversial practice, and in terms of biodiversity outcomes, it's very unproven. What we need is national standards for the assessments that are done for the, the things like the conditions like offsetting We need really, really clear enforceable national standards. And so my fifth thing would be having a national body, like a national EPA, Environmental Protection Authority, to actually enforce the laws. Because as I said earlier, we've got these tools on paper, we've got these processes on paper, but they're not funded, they're not resourced, they're not implemented by the department, they're they're not enforced. And so business as usual they can just proceed with this environmental damage and cumulative impacts occurring across the nation.
0: And Ian, did you have anything to add to that wish list?
1: So it was a very good wish list i'll I'll say that uh, straight off. Uh, I suppose one thing that I've thought of um, over a long period of time is most of our laws, both the national laws and the state and territory laws, they're really triggered when something's in crisis. So the species are actually already, at a, at a very bad, in a very bad place. Uh, They're deteriorated to very low numbers and there's a lot of threats on them. Um, and so in a way, what we need to do is to turn it around and think about, and I agree about restoration, but think about how do we protect what we've already got? So uh, Rachel mentioned bioregional plans. So that's one way, that's a really excellent way of starting to understand what you have on a regional basis. And then giving all tiers of government, and, and I'd particularly like to draw in local government because they're the ones that are on the ground and closest to the action, uh, and to give them the skills and the uh, and the right data and information that they're able to actually monitor and manage the environment that we have so that we don't get to that crisis p- position. Because we do know that, uh, that our conservation actions at the end of the at the end of the process where things are actually in decline are the most expensive. So currently where we do all sorts of different recovery efforts. we translocate species onto islands and we try and keep them alive. We have amazing organizations who are fencing off large areas of bush and, and putting endangered animals in there to protect them. but that's like a it's it, it's an enclosure with this everything else being uh, open slather for distraction. It's, we need to turn it around the other way and make our and try and make our existing ecosystems as strong and as resilient as possible. How to do that in law? That's uh, uh, that, that I need to leave to some really good environmental lawyers.
3: Personally, I would like to see legislated, enforceable targets for arresting and reversing biodiversity decline. We've seen the House of Representatives recently pass legislation for. Uh, targets for greenhouse gas emissions, I would like to see a similar process for biodiversity. And as Rachel pointed out, that needs to be binding on the states. We we have a federal system that gives us three rail gauges and at certain times of the year, six different time zones. And we see that same sort of inconsistency and chaos reflected between jurisdictions in conservation management.
2: The um, National law was recently reviewed by Professor Graham Samuel in the 10-year review. And that process was a year-long, really detailed review process, and that came up with a wish list of 38 recommendations that included really important things like says a whole system for better data management and information to help us actually know what, what environment what's happening in the environment. Uh, it also had some really interesting recommendations about Indigenous engagement and First Nations knowledge, and there's huge opportunities there, um, but it was really clear from that review that the 20-Year-Old Act isn't working and there needs to be comprehensive reform. So there's actually quite a a long wish list of what needs to happen in terms of law reform.
0: And Rachel, you mentioned earlier the idea of this cumulative impact. And that's, that's something that's come up time and time again, that Australia's environmental legislation tends to assess individual projects or actions rather than the cumulative pressures across the whole country. Now, is this a a big issue and could a reform of legislation actually address this? Uh, Ian, I'll go to you first.
1: I do believe that it, that it can make a huge difference. And we have seen there is one, um, one component under the current Act, which is called strategic assessments, which, if you like, are these regional assessments, and we have seen them used um, to some degree successfully, uh, but in other places. So in Western Australia, we have um, the, the Perth area around the city of Perth. There's a lot of different pressures in that particular set of ecosystems, and that went into a long and involved regional process, strategic assessment but it never came out the other end. So we, we, it didn't ever actually end up with, with a, uh, a finished regional assessment. Um, and they, so we're seeing the current Act not being able to be used as well as it could be. Uh, but I do believe that by giving uh, regional assessments a greater uh, impact uh, in terms of helping local councils and local owners of land to be able to manage their land more appropriately, I do think that we can make a big difference.
2: I'd just add to that as well, in terms of the individual project assessments, what we need is the law to just put in place some red lights, some no-go areas. Like there are certain species that can actually withstand no further loss. So those species, we need to identify where they are and actually protect their critical habitat. So if you want to do a development, find a different place to do it that's not and the last stand of this awkward, or, you know, that is going to impact the last population of a particular species. I think there do need to be some clear red lights. And that would give certainty to business and industry if they knew this is a no-go zone. Because there are certain species where you just cannot do a biodiversity offset. If there's so few left, you cannot just, you know, fund research in another species elsewhere and say that's a, that's an even trade-off because that's a net loss of our native biodiversity. So, I think some really clear national standards with clear red lights will help turn the trajectory around because we won't have this incremental bit by bit approval of individual projects or individual projects just flying under the radar and being able to come under an exemption. Um, and then we that's business as usual that is making a trajectory of decline. So we need some clear enforceable rules to make sure that we can protect the critical areas that are are vital for the species that are on the brink.
0: And Lee, did you have anything to add to that?
2: Yeah, I
3: think that is a particularly important point. Uh, We have a a situation where current legislation is really aimed at facilitating development rather than protecting biodiversity. So the emphasis that we've had uh, in the past has really been one where conservation is not given the priority it deserves and legal reform needs to begin with the starting point of conservation of nature being the objective of conservation laws.
1: And Marlene, if I could just add, I think that cumulative impact would be very high on my list of things to try and address in, in the review of, the, of our current environmental laws. The other one is also uh, our um, mishmash of heritage laws across Australia. So as Lee mentioned, uh, we we do have very different environmental laws in different jurisdictions. When we talk about cumulative impacts, Western Australia, in fact, has actually now put cumulative uh, cumulative impact assessment inside their Environmental Protection Authority uh, legislation. So we do have one jurisdiction that started, but most of them don't actually have the tool to do it and it's not included at the national level. Heritage legislation similarly is also very different in different jurisdictions. And we find uh, that that we're unable to to really get a a proper national picture on the loss of heritage. And heritage can be natural heritage, like we've been talking about in terms of biodiversity. It can also be cultural heritage, significant indigenous uh, cultural heritage is being lost. In Australia, the the shocking case of the Jukun Gorge destruction uh, by Rio Tinto in in this last few years uh, was highlighted across the world. You know, a 55,000-year-old site, destroyed forever, but there are many, many more sites of Indigenous heritage that are not protected, uh, thousands, in fact. And yet our National Heritage List has only about 100 places or sites listed across Australia. Uh, so we do know that it's not just biodiversity it's things of of heritage value that are that are also uh, not not well protected in a uniform way across Australia even though we have as rachel mentioned we have strategies and we have legislation in place it's actually not doing its job sufficiently
0: and rachel you mentioned before the idea of a climate trigger What is a climate trigger and and could it play a role in legislative reform?
2: So what I mean by a climate trigger is that in the national environmental law that assesses all the major projects that are proposed in Australia, at the moment there's no clear mandatory requirement to look into the climate impacts of that project. So we're talking about a law um, that approves things like coal mines and fossil fuel expansions and gas projects and those and significant land clearing that has emissions. So all these major projects that currently are high-emitting projects, our national environmental law doesn't explicitly require them to have full disclosure on their emissions, to take into account all the climate impacts of that particular project. So that's a glaring gap in our law. I think if we put in a requirement that these projects all need to have their climate impacts fully considered, I think that's a really, really important step. And that should link to the new climate target that that we're hoping to have legislated in Australia very soon because we need all our laws to be working together to achieve both climate and biodiversity outcomes.
0: Now, the State of the Environment report, to get back to it, it is a very grim report. And I think reading about it can feel a bit overwhelming for some people, well, for everyone, really. Do we have some good news on some conservation action that is happening that is already working? Um, Ian, I'll go to you first.
1: Sure. And it is, I actually find it very distressing that that we get to a point where we think that things are irreversible. What we have seen in Australia is some amazing action by uh, a lot of citizen scientists. So lots of different groups who are out there working on the ground. Um, In Australia, we have an organisation called Landcare. And you see uh, people volunteering, putting large amounts of their time and effort into restoration and recovery of of their local areas. Um, And we do know that that actually has a big positive impact. Some of the groups that have been going for 20 or 30 years have turned around uh, what were degraded river systems in in, uh, in say particularly in urban areas and turned them into really vital pieces of linking uh, biodiversity uh, between uh, large chunks of forest say. Um, so yes, there there is good positive action, and uh, particularly having uh, smartphones, which allows them to record uh, new information and pass that on into our, our national and global databases, uh, and also on-ground action by a whole host of different community-based organisations, and that's growing, and that's a very positive step.
3: Um, a really good point, and um, I was talking to one of my neighbours recently who. Um, citizen science example, she found a, an orchid species and it's a new population, previously unknown population of a threatened orchid species. Um, also, I think it's important to note that species and ecosystems can and do recover when we address the threats to them that are causing decline. So if we address habitat loss and we restore habitat, if we address the impacts of invasive species and if we take action on climate change then we can reasonably expect to see positive returns for biodiversity.
2: Um, I I live on the northern beaches in Sydney so whenever I feel a bit down at this time of year I actually like to go up to the headland and look at the uh, humpback whales migrating because that does give me a bit of hope you know, measures were put in place some time ago now and that is a species that has recovered and it's just magnificent to see them off the coast so you know sometimes you do have to step back and think of the big picture and think recovery is possible if you know we put in the protections and we invest in recovery and and we put in that effort now it is possible for species to recover
0: And I think that is a nice, hopeful outlook to end our conversation on. Thank you so much for joining Think Sustainability.
2: Thank you.
3: Thank you. Thanks very much.
0: You heard from Dr. Ian Creswell, co-chair of the 2021 State of the Environment Report. Rachel Walmsley, the head of law reform and policy at the Environmental Defender's Office and Dr. Lee Martin, Director of the Environmental Sciences Program at the University of Technology, Sydney. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology, Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Marlene Even. Thanks for your company.